Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. A big thank you to Lawrence Burns, Deputy Manager of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, for joining us on the podcast today. Lawrence joined Bailey Gifford in 2009, fresh out of Cambridge University. Having spent time in the firm's UK equity and emerging markets teams, he joined the International Growth Strategy in 2012, becoming its Deputy Chair in 2019. He became the Deputy Manager of Scottish Mortgage last year when James Anderson announced his plans to retire. James left the firm in April this year. I'm sure most of you listening will be familiar with Scottish Mortgage. It's now the second largest investment trust in the UK, with a market capitalisation of £10.8 at the time of recording. It was considerably larger six months ago, however, as the share price has more than halved since last November. But on a three- and five-year view, it still has the best share price performance in the global equity investment trust sector. Lawrence, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Great. Thank you for coming on. So Scottish Mortgage was established in 1907. It's weathered two world wars, the Great Depression, the 1970s oil crisis, dot-com boom and bust, and the global financial crisis. The investment philosophy has adapted over that time, and it had much more in the UK before James took over, for example. And James really repositioned it into high-octane growth companies. We're now arguably or possibly in quite a different investment backdrop of inflation and tighter money than we have been in recent years. Do you think the investment approach will change as market conditions change? I mean, first, I think you're, you're right to sort of highlight that uh, Scottish mortgage has been through a number of events in its history. And I think the one thing that should sort of teach us is that the world is never static. It's, it's always changing. Um, and I think that's not a bad thing for Scottish mortgage, because I think ultimately one of the things we really do is we, we're investors in change. We're not interested in companies that benefit from the status quo. And so, of course, the next decade will be different. But again, I think that's that's a good thing. And what really excites us is that we're seeing more change coming in the next two decades than really actually we've, we've seen the last two. And the way I tend to think about it is if you think back over the last 20 years of the change that we've seen in the environment that we've been in, Actually, I think the biggest influence has been Moore's Law, that doubling of computing power that we will have uh, spoken to you about in the past. But the impact of that has been concentrated on industries like retail, media, and advertising. That's what's disrupted these industries. It's also what's given us the stock behemoths like Amazon, Facebook, and Google. But retail, media, and advertising are a relatively small part of most economies. And so now um, what we're seeing with that doubling of computing power is we're seeing it spread in its impact to a wider range of industries. And that seems logical in theory because as computing power gets both cheaper and more powerful, um, its utility grows to a wider range of use cases. And, And we see this in practice very clearly, for example, in the automotive industry, with the car becoming increasingly a computer on wheels, the increasing amount of semiconductor content going into automotives. We see it in finance with the rise of fintech and a host of other areas. And I think the other element here is, you know, the the biggest area of change in many ways from this is is really biology. And I think you've written about this only recently, but, um, you know, really powered by our growing ability to cheaply gather relevant data with, for example, a luminous genomic sequencing machine. So, you know, genomic sequencing in my lifetime used to be a billion, $2 billion at the start of my life, the first ever um, genome that was sequenced as part of the um, Human Genome Project, to around $600 today. And it's that and other developments that have really transformed the amount of data that we're getting on people's health. 
And on top of this, we have increasingly sophisticated machine learning to help us make the many petabytes, even difficult to pronounce, but of data being generated and make sense of the machine learning to spot patterns in the data. Uh, so for example, take Grail's cancer test that uses machine learning to detect up to 50 different types of cancer from a single blood test. And in addition to this, and this is where I think we start to get quite spoiled in terms of transformational change over the next decade, we also know that the economy has to shift in terms of the energy transition and has to shift away from carbon. And I think that's another huge opportunity for long-term investors. Yes, there's Tesla in the automotive space. Yes, there's Norfolk in the battery manufacturing, but also Redwood Materials in battery recycling, Climeworks in carbon capture, Solugen in green chemicals, and many more. So when we look ahead and we envisage um, the next decade, it seems that there is a fair amount of transformational change to sort of maintain uh, that approach to, as you put it, sort of high-octane growth companies. And that, that nature of that transformational change is probably far more broader in implication than we've had in the last 10 or 20 years. And so I think there's a chance that when we look back at the 2020s, people see it actually standing out most for things like the energy transition and the biology revolution. I think that's what really matters to us as very long-term investors and that radical innovation always matters. And, and we see a lot of that coming through. Yeah, it's really amazing, some of the possibilities. Um, and we'll come back to the investment themes later. But the philosophy of Scottish Mortgage, as I understand it, is really to find the long-term winners that drive stock market performance early and own them over their life cycle. You quote research by Hendrik Bessenbinder often, which found that stock market returns are concentrated in 1% of most of the companies over a very long period of time. However, lots of people think that finding these companies is just too difficult. And you've had great success back in companies like Amazon and Tesla very early on. And I wouldn't call this luck, but luck does play a role in investing. What makes you think that you will be able to spot the next companies coming through? Yeah, so I think firstly, you're right. It's always helpful to have a bit of luck. Um, no, no one should ever sort of dismiss that entirely. But I think the way I think about it is, you know, we have a huge data set or a huge number of companies uh, that are available to invest in. And what we're really looking for is effectively a few needles within what is a very, very large haystack. And, and that is a challenge. But I think we're fortunate to have a number of things that help us in that challenge. The first is that I think just relying on two fund managers or even one fund management house to spot those needles on their own would sort of strike me as a suboptimal strategy. But that in turn is why we've spent a lot of effort in building uh, networks that contain within them uh, people that we can and do talk to that are much smarter than I am. Uh, to help us understand you know, how the world is changing, where they're seeing change emerge from, and to help us better know where to look at that haystack. So, so the first part of this, I think, is really the access we've built up over time to sort of world-leading academics and scientists. So to so give some examples, you know, take Brian Arthur, who was one of the first people decades ago to really actually grasp the impact of the digital revolution and what it meant in terms of economics. Alternatively, I was at a small dinner in California that was incredibly intimidating, because that dinner included a world-renowned geneticist and a Nobel Prize winner, whereas you can imagine the aim of merely keeping up with the conversation felt like somewhat of an achievement. And the second part of this network in many ways is the relationships that we've built with business leaders in both public and private companies, where I think we're in a really position, a privileged position in both terms of quantity and quality of access. And that's important not just for understanding the company they run, but also what they see in terms of how the broader world is changing. And so 
you know, if you combine these sort of different parts of that network of information, it, none of them are telling us who the next Amazon is, but I think they do do quite a good job of telling us what they're interested in, what change they're seeing, and where we should spend our time looking within the haystack and where we should spend our time thinking about. And so that helps, I think, the haystack get a little bit smaller and a little bit more manageable from the starting point, really just listening to truly brilliant people and, and understanding what they're telling us. Now, now, beyond that, I also think that we have a few other things that go in our favor. So the first is that not every company we buy will be a needle. You have to be willing in the pursuit of outliers to get things wrong. And over the years, we've invested in a number of things that haven't worked. But it's that willingness to back things, even when there's a 10, 20, 30% chance of it working out that really matters. If you want to be right all the time, or you have a limited number of shots on goal, then finding that needle is going to be pretty difficult. The second is time horizon. And by time horizon, I mean sort of five to 10 years, as we've talked to you about before. And there it's really about, you know, if you take the practical example of Tesla, we didn't know when there'd be an inflection point in electric vehicles, but we knew because of the improvements in battery technology, the further out you look, the more likely it became. And so if your objective is to get things right within two or three years with these outliers, I think that's a really hard task. I think it becomes easier if you have the patience and the ability to do that on a five to 10 year view. And I think the final thing I'd just say is that all of those outliers, you know, the Amazons, the Teslas, the Tencents, they've all had difficult periods in their history. I think it's not just the spotting, but it's also the ability to own them through the good times and the bad times that really matters. And I think that can be just as hard a thing to do sometimes as spotting them in the first place. You attract some criticism for not managing risk properly and having very overvalued stocks in the portfolio. And presumably you would firmly disagree on both of these points. And you mentioned how you like to continue to own companies and be good owners over long time periods. But what is your process for valuing stocks? And when Scottish Mortgage's share price was at its peak last November, did did you think then that the holdings were attractively priced? Yeah, so I suppose there's, there's three questions there in some ways. I mean, the high level one would be, we would like to think that we think deeply about both risk and valuation. We just think about it differently from most people in the financial market. So, you know, very quickly, we'd say that our view of risk is that risk is not volatility, but it's permanent destruction of capital. And we're happy to deal with and indeed take opportunities from the volatility when it arises. We see valuation as being the probability adjusted value of a company five or 10 years from now. We don't see valuation as something that is entirely encapsulated by a multiple of this year or next year's earnings or by a single VCF. And so I think we care about these things, but we just have a different perspective, partly of philosophy, partly of time horizon. In terms of the practical of how we value things, what we really do is we build scenarios as to what a company will look like in five and 10 years time. And we do that from a bottom-up basis of going, well, how big will the market be? What will their share of that be? What will the economic structure and return structure look like within that? And as I alluded to, we build a number of those scenarios for each company because the future is inherently uncertain. We, we don't know for sure how a company will look in five to 10 years' time. And those scenarios range normally from a very low number, often zero in terms of where it might end up, to a very, very high number. And it's the skew of those outcomes that really attracts us and how we think about valuation. It's, it's valuation done, but on a probability adjusted basis. And that again goes back to, because what we're trying to capture is, is it meaningful if there's a 20% chance of a company going up 20 fold, even though that's not the most likely outcome, it absolutely is. And we'll pursue that. In terms of sort of where valuations were in 2021, we went through that process um, of, of companies in you know summer of 2020 and also in 2021 of going more, you know, the market valuations have changed a lot. 
do we think we can make money on a five to 10 year view? And I would say it was still very much done on the, not where it goes in the next couple of years, but on the five to 10 year view. And I think the answer we came back with for most cases was that we still thought there was that very long-term opportunity. Now, obviously the discount rates on multiples you might apply to some of that have, have changed and will be different from where we were. But when we go back now and reflect, we're still not sure that the structural trends that we were backing and investing in have really changed on a long-term view. And you know, the operational performance so far has also been quite strong of the portfolio companies in that regard. But I think the main thing is just not seeing a weakening in terms of the structural trends that we've been investing alongside. And, and that's what I think gives us comfort in this environment. That doesn't mean that there won't be difficult times, but I think it does mean that on that longer term horizon, uh, we can still be optimistic. So with all that in mind, valuations are more attractive now than they were six months ago. What have you been adding to recently? And what have you been trimming? So, so I mean, I think that the main one that we've been adding to has really been Moderna. Um, and that fits in terms of that biology revolution that I sort of talked about earlier. And Moderna is an interesting one because we think it has a very, very broad platform, but it is being looked at through a COVID-specific lens. But actually, its platform can be applied to HIV, to Zika, to cancer, to a range of respiratory um, diseases. And you have a company that is trading on, if you want to get into multiples, you know, four times earnings, um, has around a third of its market cap in cash. And yet for us has a potentially phenomenal uh, long-term outlook as it uses that technology platform to deal with a range of different ailments. And, and so companies like that have been attracting our attention where there appears to have been a major sell-off, but it's harder for us to ascertain sort of some of the reasoning behind that. In terms of what we've been trimming, I think if you look over the last 12 months or so, there have been some companies in the portfolio that we've taken a bit of money out of and continue to take a bit of money out of. And I think the main one there has been Amazon, where you know, if we go back and do it in the context of scenario analysis, we were sort of building scenario analysis and going, well, it's, it's a one $1.8 trillion company. How do you make a large multiple return from here? And as we were looking out five to 10 years, we, we found that increasingly difficult. We still think it's a great company, but I think it was a combination of being a little bit more mature in the core e-commerce business, having Jeff Bezos and Jeff Wilkie step down, having to share the cloud market with more and more players. Um, so I think that in some ways has been indicative of some of the main changes. I think the other thing would just say be to say that we haven't made a huge number of changes in this environment. So despite the huge amount of volatility, we're saying you haven't seen a material uptick in terms of what we're trading. And that, again, partly reflects that as we look out over the long term, we think a lot of the structural trends are intact. I think as the market develops over time, we'll see what additional opportunities that throws up. But it, it's not been a sort of uh, a massive tick up in turn over that we've seen. You've mentioned healthcare quite a lot. Bailey Gifford seems very keen on it. I think I think you in particular are too. And there's amazing work being done by companies. You mentioned Moderna, Illumina, Regeneron, Ginkgo Bioworks. I think you're a big holding in. This is a sector that's very prone to hype. We've seen a lot of volatility. But how do you how do you manage that volatility as an investor? And and I also wondered how well you understand the science of what these companies are doing and and if you actually need to as an investor yeah i I think the science one is an interesting one so first i think there's a difficulty you you do have people that have um studied very seriously um some of the underlying science that have a medical background or a scientific background but i think the challenge there becomes that so often what these companies are pursuing firstly your medical and scientific knowledge can become out of date quite quickly it's also very broad and 
you see companies that are really trying to push the limits of what's possible. And so I think it's very difficult to go into that and say, well, I can really understand this very well and make very strong judgments in terms of, you know, the underlying science. And I think where we are therefore is feeling quite comfortable as a generalist because we're able to draw on that network that I was talking to earlier about talking to the very few people in the world that really do have that deep understanding and insight and leveraging them rather than saying, actually, we think we have an edge in understanding the underlying science because I think that's a very, very difficult thing to do. In terms of your other point on the volatility, I think in some cases, as I said before, really volatility can be helpful. It's volatility that a lot of the market struggles with because they see risk as volatility. Um, and it can be far harder in some organizations to hold something like Moderna where it's gone down 70%. That's a very difficult place to be. That scars investors and it puts them off. I think in turn, our ability to cope with volatility becomes an advantage. And as I said, we can then take an opportunity with it. But a lot of it just comes back to the culture of Bailey Gifford and the approach and the willingness to sort of judge and see how these things develop on a very long-term timescale. And I think that is a source of edge and differentiation that we we're very glad that we have. And so you said earlier how you're looking at the possibilities of what these companies can do, and you're not going to expect that all of them will succeed. And the, the portfolio's got just over 100 holdings in it, which means that the ones that don't succeed aren't going to be very, particularly damaging to the portfolio, especially the earliest stage ones. How do you decide when it's time to sell? What's the process? Can you give any examples? So I think there's a few different points. I mean, the first really does come back to that scenario analysis we talked about before. Um, so it's building that out over the next five to 10 years and working out what a company might be valued at. And does that give you a sufficient uh, probability adjusted multiple return? And the point where that starts to decline is, is the point where it becomes less attractive. And often that decline comes from a host of different possible reasons. So if you take the example of Inditex, so Inditex's um, main brand and business is effectively Zara, fast fashion in the high street. It, it's, it's a great business in many ways. They've been very good at getting the latest trends from the catwalk quickly and cheaply to the consumer. But I think one of the things that started to impact that long-term scenario analysis, well, I'll say two. The first was we started to think, well, how does the consumer react in terms of environmental consciousness? In terms of the idea that a lot of the, some of these items are being flown in to get them to the consumer as fast as possible. They're being done quite cheaply. They're not necessarily always being worn for a long period of time. Does the idea of fast fashion actually stand in opposition to environmental awareness. And I think that's particularly relevant where you have something that is like clothing, like fashion, very individual, very much stating about your statements and beliefs and values. Um, and so that, that sort of struck us as being a, a bit of a headwind to how you, you adapt to that over time, that it challenged almost the raison d'etre of, of the Zara business model in the first place. And the second was really that, you know, we thought they'd done an okay job with fashion retail but that um, as it moves online, but that at the same time that the shift to online, the channel change was probably still going to be more of a headwind than a tailwind. And, and that in turn fed into our scenario analysis of what the market in fast fashion would be and what their share would be and what the return structure would be um, and led to us selling the whole thing. Other times it's changes in management that can be a bit disconcerting. That was the case with CureVac along with sort of multiple clinical trials that didn't work out. So I think there's always a host of reasons that come into it. But I would also say that more often than not, we've found that what is a helpful check on companies and how long they should be in the portfolio is really just the competition for capital. Being able to invest anywhere in the world, being able to also invest privately means that we're, we see a huge range of exciting new opportunities constantly. And so actually what 
more often than not triggers that moment of selling isn't selling a fear because we think the wheels have come off the investment case. More often, it's just because we find better places to deploy that capital. Um, that, that's really what triggers it um, more than anything else. And, and you see that with the Amazon example. I suspect Amazon will be a very good investment over the next 10 years. But it was just that element of how does it stack up philosophically and relative to some of the other opportunities we were seeing coming through. You mentioned your ability to invest in unlisted holdings. So around half of the holdings are now in unlisted companies um, from my analysis of your annual report. What's your process for valuing the unlisted holdings in the portfolio? And are there grounds for concern that the valuation of the unquoted is lagging that of the quoted? Yes, so um, around 30% or so of the portfolio is invested in, in unlisted companies. Our process for valuing that is following um, the various international guidelines that exist. We have a separate committee within Bailey Gifford um, that is in charge of that. It's not something that myself or Tom have influence over as fund managers. That committee also leverages um, an external third party that writes reports, valuation reports on the companies, a company called Market, and that feeds into the process as well. At a philosophical level, what that committee is trying to do is trying to assign what is the fair market value to those holdings. And that fair market value is really what is the amount of money that we would get for this company if we were to go out into the private markets and sell it uh, today. That is very different from the value that me and Tom might see on a five to 10 year view, which is also another reason um, why I think us being involved in the process would never be helpful because we, we would see value a different way. But therefore you have that committees that are trying to, to try and incorporate that fair value. The other elements of it are that every quarter on a rolling basis, going through the unlisted holdings and um, assessing their valuations is done by the committee. Um, and around a third of, their port of, the port of the unlisted portfolio is done every 30 days. And so that helps keep a bit of freshness um, within the valuations. The other thing that matters, I think, is trigger events. So even though you have that quite regular quarterly rolling schedule, Trigger event that happens can also lead to a valuation reassessment. Trigger event might be a new funding round. It might be an IPO. It might be a deterioration in operational mechanics of the company. It might also be a change in the peer group, often listed peer groups valuations. And so over the recent period, therefore, you've seen quite a lot of trigger events as we've seen material sort of falls um, in the valuation of public equities that are sort of feeding through into the private companies. So that's a few different elements of how that committee is trying to keep as close as possible those valuations um, related to, to sort of fair value, um, even when we're seeing sort of very volatile markets. What we're not doing is either having the fund managers be involved in that process or just saying, well, the last funding round was, was X and therefore we won't change it no matter what for, for six or 12 months. Where you said that it's 30% of the assets and around half in terms of number of holdings, I think, just to clarify, as I, as I had said earlier. You said that they value it at what they could sell it at. I, I wonder how they know what they could, the companies could be sold at. And as a follow-on to that, how many unlisted holdings have you sold as unlisted holdings over the trust life? And, and how, is the, how has that tended to pan out? I mean, that, that, that's an interesting one because when we started in unlisted, at least the data we were getting was that there wasn't much of a secondary market, in, either for buyers or sellers of these companies. But I think as you've seen, um, more organizations, more investment houses get involved in the private space and the private space grow over time, we actually increasingly see quite a vibrant secondary market. And so, yeah, um, 
from different organizations, some we know, some we don't. Myself and Tom will get various emails, sort of almost with shopping lists of this is what you can buy, this is what you can sell, these are the prices. So that, that secondary market does exist. We've increased our holdings with the blessing of, of the companies in question in the secondary market. We haven't used it to sell or reduce, and we've done that because part of our element of going in and supporting these companies is saying we're going to back them for the long long term. So sort of trying to sell two years later in the secondary market doesn't really fit within that. And, and I think what we've also found is that we've, we've developed that secondary market over time. It, it's quite liquid. The other element, I think, within it is you know, you're asking about the valuation committee and how do they know? I mean, I think that is a difficult task, but again, they have these data points to help them. And one of them is that occasionally we see the secondary transaction market data. So that gives us one element of it. The other element, um, as I said, is, you know, trying to do it to sort of the public listed peers. So I don't think we can ever sort of claim that it's a perfect science, but it's the attempt to best um, as we can sort of reflect that sort of conservative price in there. And occasionally you get that reflected in the secondary market details that let you sort of know whether you're way off or, or, or way within it. Um, and, and that's the process that we try and follow. We try and make it as responsive as possible to market movements within it. I guess the concern is it's the point at which you want to sell it is the point at which it's hardest to sell it. But you take great pride in being supportive owners. You said in the annual report that you can do most to support companies in times of stress. I imagine now is such a time for at least some of your holdings. Can you give recent examples of how you've been supporting companies that are in stress? I think the main thing is that when you're going around and meeting companies, to demonstrate through the questions that you're asking that you're supportive and that you're continuing to focus on the long term. Because if you're managing a company and you've got a share price that's your scorecard telling you or giving you a signal, uh, one can debate its accuracy of how well you're doing, that, that's a very difficult environment and it can pressure you to take quite short-term actions. So short-term actions might be things such as taking the foot off the gas in terms of investment, allowing, pushing more efforts into profitability, which might not be in the long-term interest of building out the market and the, and the competitive position. And I think in terms of being supportive for companies, for us, what's key is going around and telling companies that the share price of the individual holding on the short and medium term doesn't matter to us. It's the long-term goal. And that if they wanted to do things that displease the market, and we have had these conversations with companies who have said, well, yeah, the market would absolutely hate it if you did that, but we can see how it's in the long-term interest. So if you were to do it, we'd support you and we'd back you within that. I think that is really meaningful because it gives them some of the cover with the board and internally to say, look, there are some shareholders that are wanting us to take these long-term actions and, and do what's right in the very long-term and do so under the very stressful conditions that we're now in. So we, we hope that's helpful um, in terms of support. We also hope that we're there to support where we can in terms of providing additional capital should it be needed to seize on opportunities. And, you know, I mean, to give one example of a company I was meeting recently, you know, we were talking about how they see the, the business developing over the next five to 10 years. The CFO there was quite clear that that wasn't the discussion they were having with most investors. With most investors, it was, please stop investing, please immediately push up profitability, which they fundamentally disagreed with for maximizing the very long-term opportunity. But I think they really did appreciate having relatively large investors on their cap table that were saying, we don't think that's in the long-term interest and we want you to, if necessary, disappoint the market with things. I just wanted to come back to one question about the private holdings. And this is a slightly technical point, 
But I see that um, Scottish Mortgage has been buying back shares quite a lot in recent months, and the unlisted holdings are now a third of the trust. So I wondered if the valuations do lag the listed ones, you say they're not being priced on a daily basis in the same way, could this be to the detriment of the other shareholders if the valuations are actually lower than what they're priced at if you're buying back the shares? So, I mean, I mean, the first point there would just be something to reiterate that our valuation committee are trying to make as adjustments as timely as possible uh, to market movements. Obviously, as you're quite rightly alluding, the market can move in hours and minutes. And, and so, so there is going to be some sort of disconnect but to make it as small as possible. I think the other aspect, though, would just be that in terms of those buybacks, when you're trading at quite a large discount, potentially to NAV, I, th- I think that is attractive. Um, and I think, again, with the private holdings, um, there's an attempt to sort of put in with the public markets what's happening there. So that's not something that we see as being particularly problematic. And indeed, it's quite advantageous to be able to reacquire shares back um, materially sort of below the NAV. Yeah, that, that's a very fair answer as a long term investor. That's that's going to be the more important point. Are you comfortable with the current level of gearing in the portfolio? Because it feels to me like a slightly unfortunate consequence that gearing rises as markets fall, and it's currently around 15%. Yeah, that, that's right, both on the theoretical and the, and the Pacific point. I think its average over the last 10 years has been around 12%, and it's got up to that, that level or, or higher that you mentioned um, on occasions in the past 10 or 12 years. It's something that's monitored on a daily basis, and we feel that we've sort of got ample headroom to deal with that. And so it's not something that's that's hugely troubling, but we do monitor it constantly to make sure that we have that ample headroom. Bailey Gifford seems a very academic place and it emphasises critical thinking and challenging convention. I wondered if you could give an example of a theme or a stock that you and Tom or you and James have disagreed on and what the process is for reaching an investment decision. Sure. So, so maybe I'll, I'll do the theoretical and then we can do the, the, the practical. The theoretical would be that what we're not trying to do is necessarily create a portfolio where we agree on every single company. There's an element of wanting to back each other's judgment. And the philosophical reason for doing that is that, you know, quite a lot of the time, companies that have that outlier potential, particularly in their earlier days, are rarely consensual. They're rarely uncontroversial. And so I think that reflects that in terms of trying to back the individual. The other aspect is that you know, when we think about mistakes, the worst mistakes tend not to be sins of commission, i.e. I bought something, it didn't do well. They tend to be sins of omission. Oh, I didn't buy that and it's gone up 10 or 15 fold and I've missed it. And, and that that's what really hurts. And so I, I think that partly explains that desire to sort of back individuals rather than have both or, or all three as it was last year, sort of fund managers agree on investment. You know, in, in terms of the practical, I mean, I think back over the years that I've worked with James, there were sort of numerous times where, where we did disagree and that was fine. You know, I remember many years ago in different strategies, buying Mercado Libre, James was worried more about the macroeconomic conditions of Latin America and the political conditions and what that would mean. And in many ways, he was right. It hasn't been a great macro political environment, but the view that actually the secular drive towards e-commerce and towards financial technology services have massively overpowered any sort of macro headwind that they've faced in environments that have had very volatile economies, very high inflation rates, etc. Similarly, the few years ago, Zalando had a bad quarter, growth stalled a lot, and I think he was quite, again, understandably a little bit more worried about what that might be saying about sort of the long-term business or not. You know, having spent a lot of time with the management and, and um, other people within that ecosystem, I sort of thought, actually, this was, if anything, an opportunity to, to top up our holdings. 
and I think James's reaction there was both admirable and tells you a lot about the culture of Bailey Gifford in that he said, well, it's philosophically compatible, what you're saying in terms of, of outliers and, and backing companies. And, and so, you know, if that's the thing that you want to do, you know, I absolutely sort of back you to do that. And I think that says a lot about the collegiate relationship and how Scottish mortgages is, is, is managed. It's not about individual people's scorecards. It's about backing the individual. It's about helping each other make better decisions. And I think that's both a nice way to operate, but also the right way in the context of the outliers that we're looking for, where we really don't want to be missing out on that level of upside that they can offer. What's your current thinking on your Chinese holdings? Because your annual report says that in retrospect, it had been a mistake to reduce holdings in Western online platform companies rather than their Chinese counterparts. And Tencent, MyTuan and Alibaba are still in Scottish Mortgage's top 10. There are people who think that relations between China and the West are so bad that Chinese companies for foreign investors could go to nothing. But what's your position on your Chinese holdings and how it's evolving? Yeah, I think what we alluded to in the annual report was a while back where we sold down on our Western platforms in part because of regulation and not following through on some of the implications of that for China was, you know, in hindsight, a mistake. I think there's also an element need to be open about this, that the level of government intervention and the breakdown or continued breakdown hostility of US-China relations have, have been sort of broader and stronger than we would have expected. I think the question going forward very much is two, two elements to it. The first element is the government are willing to intervene in some of these markets. Does that mean that there are limits on the scale that these companies can ascertain and the profitability that they're able to enjoy? And so I think that question mark has given us quite a lot of pause for thought because after all, we're trying to invest in outliers, the ability for those extreme returns. But if there are, is there, if there is some form of cap around it, I think that's something we have to take very seriously and be quite wary of. And that, that really is now filtering through into the scenario analysis of how we're thinking about it. The second side of it is also the one you alluded to, that the US defense and foreign policy establishment, I think has been more hostile cross-party than we expected towards China. Um, and we've seen, again, I think you were alluding to this in the reaction to Russia, sometimes what that can mean in terms of sanctions. Now, I can say that I think that's a very low probability, but we'd also have to accept that it's a very low, but has risen as a probability. And that in turn also has to reflect through into the scenario analysis. So that's some of the things that we're trying to work through of our Chinese holdings. A few other slightly more optimistic points would be, one, I wouldn't go as far to say that China is uninvestable. I think it's a huge part of the world, a huge part of the economy, a huge amount of innovation and dynamism. I think to cut shareholders off from any exposure to that for a generation, um, would be quite extreme. Secondly, um, I think within that, what we need to continue to do is balance what is the societal benefits that some of these companies are bringing, um, because that's the offset to the scale and to the profitability that's recognized, I think, within the government. And, and so it's trying to make sure we have a better assessment of both the social benefits, but also how the government view those social benefits. So for example, NEO, um, you know, their goal in many ways, as William Lee has put it, is to reduce the smog and air pollution around cities by providing more and more electric vehicles to China. In Door Door, it's about how do you get efficient consumption, often of food and agricultural products, to the bottom part of the pyramid that the Chinese government so, so desperately wants to make sure aren't left behind in China's sort of economic revolution. So I think over time, we've got to make sure that we're better in terms of weighing some of those offsets in terms of the social one. But it's one that we've um, had to spend a lot of time sort of thinking through over the last few months, as you might imagine. I think one of the things that is helpful, though, 
is that you are seeing that as we hit a slightly more difficult global economic period, um, I think China are showing that they see capitalism as the main way of delivering still um, economic prosperity and stability, which in turn is what legitimizes the party. And that is quite important, I think, in terms of understanding some of the motivations that I think the Chinese government will continue to want investors to be able to make money within China um, to ensure that capitalism as a means to legitimacy continues. I think the other element here um, is that what you're therefore seeing is you're seeing a, a slight shift in the regulatory tone that's quite interesting that some of these things may have gone a bit too far. And that's been some of the feedback we've been getting recently, which is encouraging. It's all quite a difficult situation to read, in my opinion, but th that, was a, that was a really interesting answer. Thank you. Um, you mentioned profitability a few times. I wondered what proportion of the companies in the portfolio, the whole Scottish mortgage portfolio, are, are loss-making. And perhaps do you worry about backing young companies with young management that haven't got experience in an inflationary environment? So in our public equity holdings, around 75% are producing uh, positive earnings. 25% are therefore producing negative earnings. If you look a little bit deeper on a free cash flow basis, which is arguably in some ways what matters most, then around 10% of the portfolio are producing um, negative cash flows. And within that, I think it's probably worth pointing out that there'll be a number of companies, going back to our, our kind of conversation earlier, that could be profitable, but are choosing to continue to invest to build out that long-term opportunity. So there's a combination of there'll be some holdings that are profitable to an extent by unprofitable to an extent by choice. And there'll be some where they're unprofitable because it's a nascent area of technology. They're trying to build electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. You know, they're trying to do autonomous cars, et cetera. And it's early in the technology roadmap, but that's a small portion of the overall portfolio. The second part of your question in terms of, you know, how do companies deal with these inflationary environments? Firstly, we'll still have a number of CEOs that have experienced different economic environments in the past. We also have a number like Delivery Hero that have endured and operated environments with far greater levels of inflation, like in Argentina of 40-50%. And that's also true of Macar Libre, who had experience of operating in Venezuela. So there is quite a broad range of experience among the founders of our companies and CEOs in terms of dealing with different macroeconomic environments. And, and I think one of the things that we're currently talking through with a number of our founders is it's great that they see demand holding up and the structural drivers holding up, but just pushing them in terms of their own scenario analysis of, okay, but have you prepared for if things get really, really bad, what does that look like? And, and, and really stress tested. And, and those are some of the conversations we're having at the moment. And what we're getting back constantly um, is that those stress testers really are being taken, taken to heart and taken seriously within those companies. When James retired, he's reflecting and he said that his his regret was that he was not more radical and asked you to, I quote, please help Scottish Mortgage to become more unreasonable and more distinctive as the pressures of the investment world pull at us. Do you have any plans to make the trust more radical and more unreasonable? The first part of the answer in some ways to that would just be, I think he has given us an incredible platform to be radical going long into the future. So he's obviously played a key role in development of the philosophy, the development of Bailey Giffers' reputation with companies and development of some of those networks of information that I talked about earlier, which are there for me and Tom to continue to use and grow over time. And I think that puts us in a very strong position to continue to be radical and different with those different information sources. In terms of sort of where do we go that's different in the future, I think the first comment would be Scottish mortgage, as you alluded to in your introduction, has always evolved over time. It's always changed. 
And so I think we want to be very open-minded about the different ways to deliver good returns for shareholders while staying true to being uh, growth and long-term. And I think within that, one of the things that interests us is that a lot of the problems you're seeing in the world today are increasingly problems that are physical in nature. So whether it's climate change um, or, or other things, there's a very much a physical problem that requires a physical solution. It can't easily be solved by the development of a new uh, and very clever app in a capital-like way. And that, I think, changes the dynamics of what is needed to build great companies in the future. That I think the Silicon Valley model has brought up an ecosystem that is really good at funding uh, those capital-like app-based businesses better than anyone else in the world. But as you need more physical solutions, the minimum viable product takes a lot more capital to reach than it does an app. And it takes a lot more time to reach. And so I think the question in our mind is, does that require a different sort of ecosystem to support it? Because what you actually need is a larger amount of capital upfront before the minimum viable product and an awful lot of patience. And so I think there's a question to us of, is there a role for Scottish Mortgage to be more helpful in the earlier stages of company foundation and formation, where actually those capital demands for doing carbon sequestration or decarbonizing traditional industries might be a lot higher? And so that, that's something that we're thinking through of, is there a particular need there? Are we helpful in that space? And how do we think about our edge within that space? Um, so that would be one area that we could push on and potentially be more radical, but it's in the very early stage of thinking, what is the value we'd add here? Yeah, that's interesting, because I, I sort of think of the portfolio as being in quite capital light areas. You've, you've had a lot of delivery companies and streaming companies. So, so that would be an interesting evolution for the portfolio. In Tom Slater's comment in the annual report said that you aim to build a portfolio that is robust to changing conditions. And I was thinking conditions have changed over the past six months and the, the share price has dropped a lot. Are you comfortable that the way the portfolio is set up now fits the bill of being robust to changing conditions? I think the key to that is, again, time horizon. Um, we're trying to build a portfolio to optimize returns for shareholders on a five to 10 year view, um, not a one to two year view. And, and that again sort of rings true in terms of what I was saying we were wanting our companies to do. And so what we've tried to construct is a portfolio that we believe is on the right side of long-term structural changes. Um, with companies that have thoughtful and adaptive management teams. And whereas we were talking about earlier, the vast majority are either sort of uh, producing positive cash flow well capitalized so that um, to the extent the storm exists that they can weather this storm appropriately uh, through that difficult period and remain therefore to benefit from that long-term structural trend in the long run and so to get you know to give an example of that you know what we're not trying to do is go and own oil companies because there could be a 12-month period where oil does well with inflation if in the long run actually that's not a robust long-term change so i think for us the key is always what are the long-term structural trends and how do we position the portfolio to be a representation of what the index of the future of the economy of the future is going to look like? And within that, you're going to sacrifice what we're not trying to do is position it new and differently every six to 12 months to deal with how the market might be behaving. But it's really about investing in terms of those long term trends. So whether it's continued adoption of cloud, whether it's continued adoption of, of e-commerce and online services, personalization of healthcare or energy transition to backing those long term trends where they are backed by management teams that have the balance sheets to weather the necessary storms that are going to occur on the way. Scottish Mortgage had a very bad spell in the, the global financial crisis um, and came out of it very strongly. So that, 
rhymes with what you've just said. We're running out of time. One more question, if I may. It also says in the annual report that there's much more in the investment world than the FT and the Wall Street Journal describe. (laughs) So do you have any recommendations for our listeners on what they should turn to for their decision making? Sure. So I mean, I, I think the first thing to say about that comment is that I think what really matters in terms of information sources is that you don't just take information from the most mainstream or traditional sources. Um, and I'd include sort of sell-side research within this, because I think doing a bit of that is fine, but doing only that has, I think, two biases. The first is that you end up potentially looking at the world for a very Anglo-Saxon lens. And also within that, I think you end up looking on a time horizon that can be a little bit shorter term than is often ideal. Um, so it isn't to say we don't value those different perspectives, but it's just it needs to be a bit broader geographically and time horizon. And so, you know, the pieces I'd encourage, well, first, I'd just encourage reading more widely. And then as we get into specific ones, it would be things like some of the people I've mentioned, the work of Brian Arthur or the work of Ming Zeng, who's a Alibaba's chief strategy officer, but actually an academic um, who came from academia to sort of actually just observe how Alibaba was changing what it meant for the world. Or, or the work of Branko Milanovic, of, of Colada Perez, of Yuan uh, Yuan Ang, who's a, uh, a very interesting Chinese academic. And so I think there's just a host of, of information sources. And, and it's not saying that any information source is right, but it's just about making sure it's broad in terms of time horizon and in terms of uh, geographical perspective. I mean, to go back to what we were saying earlier about China, I don't think you can really understand the 21st century unless you are looking at it at least partially for a Chinese perspective of how they see the world and how they see events unfolding. So sure, sure the FT, but also, you know, and, and these, these publications will have their biases also, but the South China Morning Post, the Global Times, as I've mentioned there, you know, a couple of uh, Chinese academics, I think it's having that broad set of inputs that really matters. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Lawrence. I really appreciate having you on. That was really interesting.